to Love and Grit. My name is Laia. I'm Justin. And I'm Rachel. And today we talk to two dope Philly ladies. One who feeds our bellies in all kinds of delicious ways. The other feeds our soul through the characters she plays. Amy Alexi, one of the most recognized names in Philly food, will join us. And Miriam Hyman, a Philly MC who you know from some of your favorite TV shows. Food uh, and TV? I'm in. But first, are you guys ready for our Philly lightning round? Let's play. What do you have? What do you have? Let us know. On the heels of our MC actress, Justin Rachel, who is your favorite Philadelphia MC, AKA rapper? Ooh, that's a good one. I'm glad you said rapper because I didn't know rapper and MC were the same thing. It's okay because rapper MC is Mike Controller. Oh, how about that? Or Master of Ceremonies. (laughs) Anyway, so I'll go first. Who's going first? I'll go first because I feel like Folks forget that she's an MC because she's been doing her thing on our favorite talk show, EVE. My favorite. Eve. Yes. 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 Love that. Rach, um, what do you got? I'm going with Black Thought. On the roots. From That's the roots. a good yeah. one. Yes. Yeah. Mine, just because I sat next to him once at a Sixers game, is Little Uzi Vert. Oh, nice. He's a very interesting guy. We might need to get him on Love and Brick. That would be kind of fun. Yeah, we would need to do a lot of editing, I think. <laughs> Okay, y'all, roll with me on this. A Lancaster-born, Philly-bred MC who is a Yale School of Drama graduate, recipient of the prestigious Princess Grace Award and Lenore Annenberg Fellowship. I have no idea what it is, but it's very fancy. You know her from shows like Blue Bloods, Grey's Anatomy, NCIS, Orange and New Black, Smilk, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, Masters of None, she's really good at that, Law and Order, The Wire, it's a whole bunch, just to name a few, okay? She also held a supporting role in the Netflix critically acclaimed feature, The Laundromat, and currently stars in season three of The Shy on Showtime. Oh, did I mention she also has a new album out under her MC moniker, Robin Hood? Remember, you know what MC is now. Listen, Miriam Hyman, one of the hardest working chicks that I know, let's just ask her all these questions. I was so excited to see a new face on this season. I was like, this has changed the game. Like, we love the shy. And then I had so many questions. I'm like, wait a minute. You've had so many roles. Like, you're amazing. Thank you. Which role is, like, the closest to your real personality? You know, I feel like it's probably kind of like a combination, for real, for real. When it comes to acting, I feel like you have to bring all of yourself to it. So you can't just bring just a little piece here, a little bit there. And for Dre, I feel like she's so complex. Like, you'll see more throughout, like, episode four. I was prepping because I have a live chat with Lena, kind of like as the episode is airing. Mm. And so, you know, I had to do some prep and I watched it and I'm like, Dre is wilding right now. Well, you know how it is. Okay, let me tell you, because <laughs> I'm always yelling at the TV because I'm like, Nina, you you need to calm down. You're not listening. Like, Dre gonna hold it down. Dre got you. Like, I got you. You doing too, you being too extra. Don't mess up this relationship. What are you doing? She, you know, yeah. that's, she acting like that's her daughter too. Oh, come on. You are way young. involved in this. It, it's on a whole nother level. It, it's like, you know, when you're like, okay, you know, season's finale and before, and like, okay, what they're coming about? Oh, oh, okay. So, yeah, these writers, you know, Lena, Marcus Gardley, Niambi Kelly, I mean, I feel like they're just taking it to another level because I also watched season one and season two as I was prepping because I was aware of it, but, you know, there's just so much on, there's so much to watch. And honestly, I had gotten an audition for The Shy like a couple years ago. This is like during the first pilot. And 
I didn't get it. You know, I wasn't right for the role, thankfully. And so I kind of put the shot to the side. But then when this came back up, I said, wow, this character is really dope. So I had to go back. I'm watching season one, season two, trying to find out what was Nina's love life like, you know, who had she been with before. I could tell. Right. And so I know there was the husband, you know, but clearly, like a lot of us, you know, she's sexually fluid. So I think at the end of the day, it depends on who's making her happy, you know, who's the the one that's being really present. So I'm just trying to really be present with this character. Um, Well, honey, you are doing it. You are. Thank you. Let me also ask you, what's it like to be the new kid on the block? They have already had their rapport Mm -hmm. and they know who they eat lunch with and who they, um, what what was that like for you? It was kind of like the first day of school or at least your first day and you're starting at a new school. I felt extremely embraced from day one. I'm talking from hair and makeup to the producers, to all of the cast, to the, you know. Miriam, how black is the shy behind the scenes? Yeah, it's pretty black right now. I mean, I don't know what was really happening prior to, but they have a lot of black and brown people, you know, on the scene. And that is super dope because I've worked on a lot of shows and you mm-hmm. just, you really don't have that. So it was just great to feel as if like, oh, okay, now I'm balancing out, you know, what I've been doing thus far with my work because I've had this side now I get a chance to see what it's like and I've been in all black productions but it's been mainly like theater you know it hasn't necessarily been like a television show critically acclaimed with a lot of dope cast and, and I, I'm not hearing that this movement is exploding yeah exactly and I feel like within the shy just this season not only are these issues Chicago residents are facing this community but this is global for real for real like in terms of concerns that a lot of people are dealing with the idea of unity the idea of love black love trans love you know how however you're looking at it there's been just a lot of different I think storylines introduced and I think it's just getting better and better every week Tell me your Philly connection. Well, West Philadelphia, born and raised. (laughs) (laughs) Originally, actually, I was born in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is like Amish town. My family was already living in Philly, but then they moved to Lancaster to just kind of get a change. I was born during that time. My parents both pretty radical. My father actually was one of Malcolm X's publicists. I think they realized they wanted to be a little bit more connected to their roots, you know, being back in Philly where they were both raised. So they packed us up. I'm one of seven. So they took us all back to Philadelphia. What number are you, Miriam? I'm number six. I'm baby girl. Yes. Yeah. And then I have a brother right under me. Yeah. (laughs) So basically, yeah. So I was raised in Philadelphia. We moved there when I was about like five or so and grew up in Philly. You know, I went to Philadelphia public schools. Where'd you go to high school? I went to John Barry for like a year in West Philly. Then I went to Ethan Allen, which is in the Northeast. I had to take a school bus out there. And then I went to William Penn, which no longer exists. Mm -hmm. Then I went to University of the Arts to get my BFA in acting. And, you know, I was on the theater scene a little bit, just trying to, like, get my equity points, become in the union. So I get some health insurance. Lord Jesus. (laughs) So I just had a a desire to want to do more television and more film. I was in the theater. I had went to Freedom Theater for a little bit. Um, this was always what you wanted to do. Yeah, because I basically, okay. I had seen a film, A Low Down Dirty Shame, actually, when I was a little kid. Too young to even be in the theater, but my mom, we begged my mom to take us. Who was it that had you? I'm like, is it Jada Pinkett? Was it Sally Richardson? Was it, it, was, it was Jada. And it's yeah. funny because here she is, young Black woman, smart, energetic, feisty, really loving, 
and she was trying to find a solution throughout the whole, you know, film. And so for whatever reason, I just really identified with her, probably because she was a black woman and I rarely get a chance to see that on the big screen. So I said to my mom at the end of the film, I said, that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. Those exact words. And I, what does that mean? You know what I mean? Like, I didn't even know what I was talking about, but I guess I did because I've been doing it ever since. But yeah, you know, so going back, I was, like I said, on the theater scene for a little bit. I knew I wanted to ultimately do TV and film. So I had gotten with like a little manager in Philly and she sent me out for like The Wire. I ended up booking that. Can I just, I'm sorry, which season of The Wire that is important? It's actually the last season. You must have been so excited to book that. I was. It was actually my second TV job because I had booked an episode of Law and Order. The classic. Right, you (laughs) know. That's school right there. Mm. Exactly. So the crazy thing is in my scene is with Sonya Song. She played the mother of Brandon in season one and season two. So you see her in the first episode of oh, season yeah. three. It's the Sonya Song, son, from oh, The Wire. Yes. So I ended up seeing her because we shot in Chicago. So I was staying in my hotel. She came in the lobby and I'm like, hey, you don't remember me, but I did a scene with you on The Wire. And she was like, what are you doing here now? I said, well, now I'm on the shot. She's like, what? It was a really cool moment. So yeah, did the theater a little bit, started to do a little bit of TV. And then I really, like, I knew I needed to get more training because when I would go and see a lot of the shows in Philly, like a lot of the theater shows, the actors that were really good all had training. <laughs> so I started looking in the playbills like, well, what school did they go to? What school, you know? And a lot of these people had gone to NYU, they went to Juilliard, they went to Yale. And then I was really inspired to go to Yale because I had ran into a friend of mine he said to me, look, you're good, but yeah, we'll make you better. And I heard that and I'm like, I'm from Philly. What you mean? Like, make me better. Like, what? You know, I had a little ego, you know. But basically, I heard that. I heard that. And I decided, you know what? It makes sense for me to really just try to hone my craft to the best of my ability. So I ended up getting in. I only applied there. Because to me, all the people who I really respected, the Angela Bassett, the Merle Streeps, David Allen Greer. David mm-hmm. Allen, you know, I mean, it's mad people. Courtney B. Vance, Paul Giamani, it's a lot of people. And that's not to say that a lot of other great talent hasn't come from some of these other top institutions, because clearly they have, you know, there's no doubt about that. But for some reason, I was just really drawn to that. And that's where Lupita went too, right? Or yeah, Lu- Lupita and I are the same class. Okay. Yeah. So that's how you Winston, got it. Winston Duke, who was right wow. under us. Yaya Abdul Mateen. Wow. Like Yaya went to Yale. We all went to Yale, yeah. yeah. What was the experience like there? It was interesting. There were obviously a lot of stressful times, you know. In my class, I was one of 15, and the only brown women were myself and Lupita. Mm. So I'm the only American. She's coming from Kenya. And then we had two brown guys who were in our class, four of us out of 15. So, you know, it's this thing that we're dealing with right now, you know, just needing diversity, you know, in terms of the school plays that you're doing, you know, making sure that people are cast equally. I think that they try to do good in that regard, but I think you can always do better. I got really good roles while I was at school, but I was just one of those individuals where you just can't give me like coming from Philly, the love and the grit. I just will not be at the bottom of the barrel. It's not happening. 
but it was a really enriching experience. You know, I got to learn about a lot of really great playwrights from your Shakespeare to August Wilson to Lorraine Hansberry to Chekhov. I was completely invested in school and just completely, completely focused. You don't really have time to do anything else when you're at Yale in the graduate yeah. program because it's three years, you're covering a lot, you know, movement, clown classes, vocal, wow. speech. It's everything, text analysis, like you're getting it all. They want you to be fully equipped when you come out or as equipped as possible. Obviously, there's still work to be done when you come out. It's not the end all be all, but I feel like it's gonna get you close. When I came out of graduate school, my first job actually I booked was at the public theater. Basically, my first job was Richard III. I was in that cast with Ron Sebus Jones. He plays the father on This Is Us. Reg Cathy, who I yes. did Tempest with, yes. he played my father, I played Miranda. He went to Yale. While I was working on Richard III at the public, I came in, you know, ready to go. I was off book, ready to go. That's just how I work. So you're not gonna see me with no script in the hand. I'm not gonna be walking around like, so what is my, no, I know the lines. <laughs> That's just how I like to work. I wanna talk and listen and, you know, make eye contact. You don't have to do it that way, but you know. Um, <laughs> So anyway, I had a lot of free time when I was working on that particular show. And so I was like, how do I fill my time? I started listening to a lot of instrumental beats, your Swiss beats and, you know, Just Blaze. And I wasn't really crazy about what I was hearing on the radio at that time. So I started writing what I was not hearing uh. about it. And I didn't really know what a verse was or like a full on bar. Like I was kind of self-taught, you know, in that way. So for me, it was like going from the bard to the bars, right? The rhythms were there. I fell in love with the prose, you know, how he wrote in verse and Richard too is all verse. So I just, I love the literature. And so it's like, well, with this, I can have full autonomy. Like as a writer, I can write whatever I want, say it how I want to say it, promote, motivate, inspire, however I want to do it. So I would start just writing like a line here, a line there. And then one of my homeboys, Isto, who actually produced this whole EP, Alter Ego, I would send him like a couple of lines. He would respond back. I would respond back. And then so two lines turned into a verse, turned into a song, turned into a mixtape. Don't forget you guys, she has an alter ego name, not just the name of her album. The MC name is Robin Hood. Hey, come on. Rather with a Y. But yeah, so that's kind of how it happened. And then I just kept pushing myself and just realizing that I'm different in the game in terms of what I'm talking about. And so I just needed to stay true to myself, honest, open and truthful, applying that in your personal life, your professional life, making sure that you're just keeping it real in every single thing, you know, that you do with everyone you interact with. So yeah, the first mixtape was Journey of an MC, um, volume one, and I was nominated for a Philadelphia Hip Hop Award, like a new artist award. And then I dropped the EP called For Hire. Earlier this year, like at the top of Corona, I dropped my EP Truth Teller. And then Alter Ego came just like two weeks ago. You are busy. Uh, yeah, and I started writing Truth Teller last year, actually. So it was like right before I started shooting the shot. Before we leave, you know what I, I, I wanted to play was, I want to play Leather George. Robin. <laughs> Most definitely. So one of my favorite lines from Richard too. Y'all know mine innocence, Brother George to thrive. Mine innocence and St. George to thrive. So we talked a lot about how this current situation, this current climate parallels to the actual play. When I read that line, I'm about to go into battle. Everything, all of my goods have been taken from me. It's a crazy time. I'm about to be banished. 
And so when I read that line in the script, I said, wow, in no way am I trying to say like, I'm like George Floyd or anything like that. But here we have an individual who's basically going to be banished and stripped of everything that they have. And they're calling on St. George and their innocence to protect them in this fight. So for me, I was just like, wow, this is so majorly compelling. Just my people in general, you know, it's like we've been stripped of so much. I ended up writing a song called Brother George, which is on Alter Ego, because I changed it from St. George in the line that Shakespeare wrote to Brother George. And so like in the hook, you know, I say, mine innocence and Brother George to thrive. My innocence and Brother George to thrive. Brianna, I'm mine, we gon' keep y'all alive. Trayvon, Eric, and Tamir, we salute y'all lives and we wish that y'all was here. We know Thanks so much, Miriam. Thank you this for making Philly proud. I appreciate y'all so much. If you're a Philly foodie or a person who just likes to eat good food, you definitely know the name Tallulah. Whether it's her table in Kenneth Square or her garden and daily restaurants in Washington Square. However, it is because of Amy Alexi that we are able to bear witness to such deliciousness. Mm. But what's her story? What did she learn from Steven Starr? And what is it about cheese that she loves so much? Let's find out. Tallulah's Garden was actually the first place I ate when we could finally do outdoor dining again. It was my first meal, Amy. That's awesome to hear. And we've had a lot of those. We've had a lot of people that were also saying they're not going anywhere. They have no intention of really going out of their routine of isolation, but they're like, we're okay to come to Tallulah's Garden for some reason. And I yeah. think it's because it's like off the sidewalk. It's not a heavily trafficked area and you're kind of like tucked away. There's something about it where people are like, that's my next step. And then I'll make my next step in a couple more weeks. An oasis. Yeah. That's an interesting thought because it is like a good training wheels for like yes. eating outside and, and being close to people because you really do yeah. have your space there. That's an ideal thing to have right now in Center City, Philadelphia. I mean, in the old days, when I opened the garden, I would joke that like we didn't have any pedestrian traffic because really nothing was going on in Washington Square. So I was nervous in the beginning because I was like, where's the humans? You know, where's the city activity? And I was like, oh, I can't just be a destination business here. You know, we need the city. And man, Washington Square has changed, you know, in that period of time. Now you're the neighborhood spot. Yeah, now we have a neighborhood, it feels like. It really has changed here. What has the last few months been like for your organization? You have several restaurants, suburban and city. (laughs) There's different rules. It must be really stressful. Thank you for saying <laughs> it is super stressful. Um, and I do think my dynamic is really unique. I live in Kenneth Square, where my Tallulah's table is. And then I commute every day. And back in April, I still was coming to the city to check on the love and Tallulah's garden and Tallulah's daily every day, even when we were closed, while Tallulah's table in Chester County was open. So I have this crazy kind of like city country life and a perspective that has helped inform me with the opening of the restaurants in Philadelphia. But it's jarring a little bit too sometimes because in Philadelphia where we're closed up a little more and then I return to Chester County and you see more people out and about. So it's allowed me to really keep my caution high in Chester County more than others, I think. Philadelphia has informed me to be kind of a beacon of safety out in Chester County while Chester County was progressing a little faster. So it's been nice in a way to kind of have that reminder. I think people that are living in places that have not had their guard up so well are now regretting that. So I think now I'm like, wow, that was a neat thing. 
I was just, you know, in the city all of the time and I would be drive around Jefferson and, you know, I'd see uh, temporary hospitals and testing centers. And so I was, you know, permitted me to kind of like speak the word of safety a little more. Now the practice that I had in Chester County allowed me to open the love and the garden and the daily with a little more practice. What's it like for you as a member of the Philadelphia restaurant community? In my mind, there is a a crew of folks that are communicating and making sure that they have everything together and just, you know, leaning on each other when they need it. Is that the case for the restaurant community in Philly? In Star Restaurants, it's been a really supportive group. And I feel like we've had a lot of, and granted, we're such a people business Mm. that Doing calls on the phone and emails and things to communicate for the restaurant, it took us a minute to get up to speed because we're used to having like a think tank, a a summit for us. It's like we sit around the restaurant and fill up the restaurant and we eat and eat cookies and snack and drink coffee. And we're talking about, you know, what are we going to do this year? What's our focus? So it took us a minute to create that network again because we're used to being hands-on. So then we got on our phones and we got on our emails and our Zoom calls and stuff and we did get together and start communicating a ton, but this is uncharted. So everyone had to recognize that for a minute. It was, we see so much in the restaurant business. We're used to like, oh, I've been there, done that. I've been doing this for so long, you know, and Mm -hmm. I can usually say, oh, you know, when the Broad Street run happens, we do it like this. Mm -hmm. We know what we're doing. And this was the first time we, us restaurant people who are usually thinking on our feet, all of a sudden we're sitting down and we're like, hmm, We don't know what we're doing. That knocked us back, definitely. What comes into play when you're looking at all of these adjustments and what does that look like for a menu where before you may have had 20 items, but then, Mm -hmm. you know, repurposing or figuring out what works, what goes into play with those types of decisions? I'm so glad to talk about that topic because I live in both worlds in the restaurants. You know, I'm, I'm front of the house and on the hospitality side, and then I'm deeply passionate and have a background as a chef on the culinary side. And then I'm on the beverage side. I've studied wine and I love wine, but the food has been- wine. We all love wine. Yes. Wait, can we just establish everyone loves wine? <laughs> I've already bookmarked it. We're going to talk about wine and cheese later. Usually like, yeah, exactly. Our staff meetings involve wine and how are we drinking wine, you know, for the book. But the food programming is the thing that really, and I advise anyone who's working on this now, That is the heart of the matter. You have to start with the inside safety of the building and the inside safety with your staff. And you have to determine with vendors and menus how you're going to space out kitchens. The story of restaurants, it's always been the ballet, you know, and in the kitchen, it's like you see these funny old posters of craziness in a kitchen and pots stacked Mm -hmm. up high and people climbing over one another to cook a plate of pasta. And it's fun. You know, we love working shoulder to shoulder. So I really, I was like, we have to start there because if our employees don't feel safe and we're not bringing out the best in them, we're never going to get it to the table right. Amy, are you saying, because I was thinking in in Rachel's question of like figuring out what food is going to be on the menu and off the menu, I was thinking it was like based on budget and things of that nature. But before you can even get there, you have to think of what meal takes the most people to put together to. And, you know, chefs and us culinary people, you know, we like to like bring it, you know, we're, we want dishes that are involved and we like to do make a ton of work and beautiful plating. And a lot of that, I really had to sit back and think, I need to develop dishes that maybe one person can make from beginning to end, potentially, maybe not crossing over each other. And when you design a restaurant, you know, 
maybe 30% of the square footage is going to be the kitchen. So I had to think about overnight shifts, early morning shifts for people to prep. So maybe a prep cook isn't working next to a line cook at the same time because we just didn't have the space. And then the menu has to trickle down. But you have Mm. to remember, you know, guests want choice. Guests want, you know, to come often and they want a choice. Do I get the salad, a pasta? Should I get the scallops? I'm feeling so selfish and a little emotional for like my favorite restaurants because I'm like, man, I never even thought about, I'm sitting here like, why isn't this on the menu, on the takeout menu? Yeah. I'm realizing that it takes people like, oh. Yeah, the classic culinary line in a kitchen, you know, you could have a dozen staff working on a culinary line and an expediter and a couple food runners in the kitchen and they're all waiting and they're right next to the chef and they're like, yes, chef. And that's closer than six feet. So we have to mitigate that. And that's where I started my programming, kind of. I want to jump there, but give a little explanation of Tallulah's table to people (laughs) who may not know. Yeah. (laughs) Because it it is a storied place. It is literally a one-table restaurant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And speaking of emotional, oh my gosh, you know, I've done that dinner in that room for 13 years or more. Every night there's a destination group in there celebrating or just being together, like the dinner table, you know, doing this thing. There was times like late March, you know, when we stopped doing that, where I couldn't believe that was gone. And so when we brought it back the other night, it was really special. Granted, the philosophy of that place is embedded spaciousness and privacy to some degree and intimacy. So that was, we're lucky we had that. And then I tried to like migrate some of that to Philly. Very different. If you were to describe the three places, Tallulah's Daily, Mm -hmm. Tallulah's Garden, Tallulah's Table, what is the difference with the personalities? It's funny because I always, I try to think about them in their sameness. But like for me, they're the same because the idea of this home-like hospitality and changing seasonal local menu is the mission for me. So I'm always there. The difference is, I guess, the vibe in the dining rooms. There's definitely a vibe that comes off of being across from Washington Square Park, mm-hmm. being on 7th and Walnut, in between Locust, the fun urban excitement. So it's like the city mouse and the country mouse. Where did the, the name Tallulah's come from? It's my daughter's middle name. Aww. And it was just an alliteration thing. My mom, one day we, I was in there working on the big farm table. And I was like, maybe the tasting table or the country table, because I wanted it to be about the moment. And in all the restaurants, I'll say this, the moment is about what happens to the guests when they're sitting around the table. They forget they're in a restaurant, whatever kind of restaurant they're in. It's the moment of them interacting and enjoying, and they forget the conventions of the restaurant. So I knew I wanted it to be about the table. And then suddenly my mom just said, well, why don't you you try Tallulah's table? It's kind of about family and about the spirit of every generation and then it just stuck so how old is Tallulah now she's 15 Um, so what's her first name Annalie so it's Annalie Tallulah yeah is she now on the stage where she can go um hey guys I have my own restaurant have you been to my my table have you been to my garden She, she does a little bit she is actually at the stage where she's getting trained as a barista to learn how to work yes yes, nice Nice. that's my Philly girl yeah more and more I have her studying food and stuff okay not wine she's not studying wine I love how you describe all the establishments because it really speaks to you know our region and the city where no matter you know 
what you love or, you know, um, what your interests are. There's so much to offer that speaks to everyone. And I feel yeah. like all three places do that, but it's also empowering your guests, you know, whatever their comfort level is, whatever their love and their passions that they can experience that at least at one of these locations. So that's awesome. Yeah. I think it's interesting. You named a restaurant, the love, and the name of this podcast is love and grit. There's yeah. definitely a theme line I with love, love in Philadelphia. Oh, been, Where is yeah. it for you? Yes. I mean, for me, especially the Tallulah's Garden, again, the heart of that, you know, family and that sort of thing. And that's where the love is. And then when I was working on the love and I looked at the location in the corner on Rittenhouse Square, you know, I was like, this is an iconic older neighborhood. And I felt like it was really risky. I mean, so risky that a lot of people are like, that's crazy calling something the love. And I was like, I want to say to me what the most important ingredient in a restaurant in, in life is. But mm -hmm. to me, the most important ingredient in a restaurant is the foods made with the love, the hospitality is made with the love. And if that isn't your core value, it doesn't seem like you could do the other things in a restaurant, even before COVID, say. In a restaurant, we're feeding you, you know, and we're taking care of you for two hours, you know, and potentially we're celebrating your birthday or anniversary or something. So it just kept resonating, the love. And I kept thinking about the love statue in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, and so many layers of the love kept speaking to me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's when you have a good name, but it's, it's edgy. It takes a minute. And then whatever happens, the love opens and then human beings started to be there enjoying themselves. And it just worked. Can I ask you on the grit side of things? Because, you know, yeah. as we talk about the beauty of your restaurants and establishments, it's interesting, your story, because, you know, you started in the restaurant business as a server, right? To me, that's kind of oh, like yeah. the gritty side of things. And Absolutely, like kitchen, and then, serving. Exactly. And then also yes. you, you matriculated in the Steven Star world as well. So I'm curious, number one, what you learned in that way from the Steven Star experience and then the advice that you would give other people who would love to be where you are today. At heart, I think I'm a really kind of like an indie, independent person. My upbringing, you know, like gardening and kind of hippie parents and very kind of independent spirit. So when I integrated with Steven, and Star Restaurants, it was really neat for me because I hadn't been exposed to a lot of corporate mm. experiences. So in the beginning, I was drawn to it because it had a layer of something that I was unfamiliar with. You know, they write a lot of documents and memos and forms and meetings and things like that. But I was not willing to let go of my free spirit Good. side. Uh -huh. So I, I tried to like pick and choose what I felt like was functional and practical in the restaurant experience as I knew it, you know, as like a business that's about people. So I think I like gleaned the best of the corporate life, but I still am gonna put it back in my indie lifestyle. I think Philadelphia is made up with a great group of restaurateurs, but oh, God, other yes. businesses that no, also no. are really indie. I've traveled in some other cities in San Francisco and Denver and Houston and some cities that have a little more of a corporate vibe, but man, in Philadelphia, we are like the amazing independents. You know, you think of some of these great chefs in the city that have like, they just went out on their own. Great fashion designers, musicians. It's really a great environment for like independence. And that's the love thing, a spirit of passion. Maybe the grit, the grit, definitely. So what's the future hold? Oh, 
oh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, she's a day to day. What? We live in yeah. life day to day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, running the restaurants now, I think we're going to stick with the sort of distance and operations that we have. So I think we're going to learn how to do things with a lower occupancy. And I'm kind of into that because I think we can find ways to make it more special and maybe do some more unique things. Granted, we can't pack the kitchen with tons of chefs in there. We want to keep distance, but maybe we can do new meal periods and open for Friday brunch. Who knows? Less people are going back to work. So maybe people want to have brunch on Friday. I don't know. Like, Table for three, please. Yeah. like I'm You can thinking, join us if you want. I mean, like new things. The other day I was like, you know, why does happy hour have to start at five o'clock? Like, it doesn't. You know, it doesn't. like- We'll support you on this. Yeah, sure. people are waking up early. What's wrong with two o'clock? <laughs> Do you have a favorite place that you like to visit with your daughter or a special place, whether it's, you know, in Philadelphia or the countryside? I forget to do it often enough, but we live right near Longwood Gardens. And Longwood Gardens is spectacular and it's naturally spacious. It's open year round. You can take children. It's handicap accessible, which is amazing. My mom's rather disabled and doesn't walk great distances and I can take her. There's always something with the season. So that's really cool. And my 15 year old, who's, you know, obviously bored of me and it's chill. Yeah, I'd say that's my favorite. I'm excited for the museums to open in Philly, especially a lot of my staff have little ones and they're excited to hit the Franklin Institute and the zoo. I think um, you just created yeah. a mini itinerary for folks. <laughs> yeah, if they want to do their first time out, they can come to the garden <laughs> yeah, or the love. Right. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for joining us. What a pleasure. If you like us, tell your friends about Love and Grit. And don't forget to rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts on Apple or Spotify. Spotify.